Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brand. And this episode, the winner is SST-174, the Zoog's Rift cassette, Son of Puke. Brant, we love Zoog's Rift. This might be one of the harder Zoog's Rift records to listen to and get into it, but um, I actually enjoyed it uh, for... For some strange reason this week, it totally hit a whole bunch of notes for me, so it was just what I needed. And to help us along the way, we've got an ultra, ultra special guest. Yeah, Laura Rift's on the show. Yeah, it's so cool to have Laura on. I mean, when you hear the interview, you can tell Laura and Zoogs were, they were totally soulmates, mm-hmm. and she really got him, all of him. And uh, it's very cool to hear from Laura just about Zoogs in general, and it's a crazy recording, and like I said, I, I kind of needed it this week. <laughs> it was uh, it was a bit of a palate cleanser for me, so it's it's all good. Yeah. Um, why don't you hit me with some spiels? Okay. Uh, we were talking about XTC, Ryan, a few weeks ago, and you told me about a documentary, so I tracked it down. It's called This Is Pop. Yep. And? 2017, directed by Charlie Thomas and Roger Penny. It's really good. Yeah, uh, it's well done. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. They have a really interesting story. I knew a lot more XTC songs than I thought I did, um, Mm -hmm. but I really need to dig into their catalog. Clearly a great band with extreme artistic integrity. Yeah, totally. I'm not a huge fan by any means. I have dabbled. I'm like you when I watched the documentary. There were a ton of songs that I recognized. Um, It's one of those ones where... Next time I'm flipping through the bins and I find a decent priced XTC, it's mine. Yeah. Okay, Ryan, three on the tree time. Do it. Okay, so I saw this olive tree press release for a Michael Nkrumah LP called A Man in Desperation. This did not come out on olive tree. Maybe that was the plan at one point. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Michael is the son of Ross Michael. Uh, he did play with Doc and Daryl in a, and maybe Earl, I'm not sure in a pre-Eye Against Eye version of the Bad Brains, but I don't even know if they were calling it Bad Brains. I don't know if the intent was for him to replace HR or if they were just messing around or thinking of getting something different going. I'm really not sure. Trying to get something going while HR was figuring shit out. Yeah, I have even heard that they wrote songs with him that ended up on Eye Against Eye, but I don't know if that's true or not. Hmm. Anyways, in this, uh, on this album, A Man in Desperation, David Byers and Kenny Dredd are on it. Ah. This is what the press release says. Both guitarists who have been producing and mixing records this year for Olive Tree Records together with Roland Varesco and Doc Knight, their fellow band members from the Go-Go Rockers outfit Outrage, who have come together with arranger, bassist William Banks and Michael to put together a rock and reggae release for the Tashi label. And then it says, This is not reggae. This is rock. This is a man in desperation. It's very similar to some of the HR stuff that we've heard, in the sense that it's, uh, you know, all over the place. Fusion. Big time riffs, some electronic drums, some synths, some horns. Uh, it's really over all over the place musically. It's interesting. When I listen to it, I really cannot picture Michael singing with bad brains at all. Uh, like I said, I'm really not sure that was ever in the cards or what the plan was, but it's an interesting release. Hmm. You know what I listened to for the first time this week? Because you meant I didn't know it existed, but you mentioned it on the episode 
uh, the HR episode that we just did, that live HR yeah. record. Yeah. I listened to that. Doc Knight gets a major shout out yeah. from HR while he's toasting in between songs too. It's really good, hey? Yeah. It's it's a little rough. Like, some of it is pretty distorted, but great versions of some of the, like, gr- awesome version of Happy Birthday. Yeah. Like, like HR is just, what a vocalist. Wow. Yeah. Okay. $5 Priest. Self-titled record, 2008 Bang Records. Bob Burt on drums is the SSD mm. connection. Cool. Total supergroup. Ron Ward on vocals. He's been in a bunch of bands, most notably uh, Speedball Baby. He's got a real John Spencer vibe, uh, who is also on this album, John Spencer, playing theremin, of all things. Another Speedball Baby alum who also plays with John Spencer in Heavy Trash, Matt Verderay plays guitar jack martin who played with kid congo uh the awesome knoxville girls oh yeah uh, and many of these same people in a bunch of other bands he's on here norman westberg of swans and tons of other great bands is on guitar eric abel of heroin sheiks on bass along with uh, george porphyrus also of heroin sheiks uh, and james chance plays some sax on it garagey, swampy, dirty rock with, you know, great playing, great vocals, highly recommended. They have two other albums that are also really good. If you're into stuff like the Chrome Cranks, this is the real deal. Oh, yeah. yeah. What's it called again? $5 Priest is the name of the band. $5 Priest, I'm in. All three of their records are on Bang, the great Australian label. Yeah, great label. Okay, throwback to two weeks ago, I think it was, Fred Frith. I checked out the Massacre album, Funny Valentine. This is their reunion record from 98 on John Zorn's Zadok label. Oh, no way. I've never heard this one. I only have the first record. Yeah. It's Bill Laswell on bass, of course. Uh, Fred Frith on guitar, of course. Charles Hayward of This Heat, replacing Fred Mare on drums for this version. No way. Yeah. Most of the material is called from studio improvs. It's wonderfully avant-garde, some great scronking guitar from Fred. Uh, And they kept this lineup going for a while. They eventually released three live albums, all on Zadok. Hmm. Worth checking out for sure. I do like that first This Heat record as well. So I like some of their stuff too. I'm I'm remiss in checking out the Reformed Massacre. Gotta do that. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's all I have this week. That's all you got? That's it, man. Oh man, I've got some spiels for I'm you. Still, I'm still busy listening to, uh, you know, Wasp. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do that. All right. So my my top story, of course, is the announcement of the new Descendants record, Ninth and Walnut, July 23rd on Epitaph. It comes out. Bill mentioned this record on our show. Uh, go back and check out episode 142, Milo Goes to College, and 143, I Don't Want to Grow Up. This is the recording that began in 2002 with Tony and Frank, uh, but was not finished by the time that Frank passed away in 08. It was finished last year when Milo added his vocals. These are all songs from 77 to 80. Uh, we have Milo doing Ride the Wild, and It's a Hectic World this time around. There's the song like the way i know which has already been released on that blasting room comp really pumped to check this one out um anything uh descendants 
is worth checking out, of course. But like, you know, Frank and Tony era tunes, um, that's that's high up on the list for sure. And then also announced last week, also released was a an additional Descendants song. I don't have any info on it really, um, like what the lineup is or anything. I presume it's it's a new lineup uh, era song. I presume it's called Ugly Cold. It's on a digital comp that just was put out called Keep It a Smalls World After All. It's a benefit for Smalls Bar in Hamtramck, Michigan. Mm. It's this bar. And it's it's kind of like that comp, that benefit comp I mentioned last week where artists are pulling together and putting out a digital comp to help keep promoters and bars afloat that were part of the circuit. So go check out that one on Bandcamp. Keep it a Smalls World After All. New Descendants track on that one too. Yeah, the track they've released so far for that Ninth and Walnut is really good. Hey, Ryan, you know when we had like Bill on and he talked about that record though? Yeah, man. Was that like, you know, a scoop? Was that a world exclusive? Did we scoop it? Yeah. Possibly. I don't know. Did you know? Maybe. I would I mean how how many weeks ago is that I though? That's like 30 30 weeks ago Bill talked about it on our show. We are so fucking swa, man. Yeah. Oh. It don't get no more swa than that. Hey, second spiel, podcast shout out. Nice. Ready? Yeah. Uh, this podcast, it's kind of new. It's called The Vinyl Vault. Hmm. Um, last week, they had a new episode that came out with Ian McKay on it. It's hosted by a local DC radio DJ and record store clerk named JC. She had Ian on, and they were really talking about music of course but specifically talking about the event of going to the record store how it's like church how it's like school the characters you meet at a record store how you had like your own record store you know and and how they were a real event um it totally totally made me miss going to my local stores and flipping through the bins uh things suck where i live right now really hard but as soon as they uh, suck less, I can't wait to go to uh, the record stores again. Now, one other thing, though, not only is it a good podcast, but of course, during the episode, Ian brings up Henry and his longstanding friendship with Henry and how they're you know, still best buds. But he also mentioned how they, ta- they still talk to this day every Sunday. And you know who that reminded me of? Kind of like us? Yeah, man, exactly. Yeah. Right on, hey? I'm Henry. <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm, I'd be happy to be either. What doesn't matter to me. All right. Final spiel. It's an edition of my last 10. Oh, boy. You really okay. are bringing the spiels. I'm bringing the You're spiels. Spiel gusher tonight. Yeah. It's not my top 10. It's my last 10. And this is Alternative Tentacles edition. Last 10. Whoa, man, save it for eight years from now when we do the... No, you no, man, know, I just... You don't know Tragic Mulatto <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, here's the deal. Okay, I remember I mentioned that Alternative Tentacles had like a garage sale, $1 discs, $10 records, right. to make room for all the no means no reissues. Right. So I got in on that sale, and... Shout out to all the mail carriers and package deliverers, of course. My 
alternative tentacles box arrived. And so here's my last 10 alternative tentacles releases I listened to out of my alternative tentacles garage sale box. First one, and this isn't the only one, but the first one was a recommend by you. Okay. It's the MIA record, Lost Boys. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, got that for $1 on CD. Um, this is the great band from Las Vegas. These are album, unreleased, rare, live, out-of-print tracks by this band from 80 to 85. Great melodic hardcore. MIA have been showing up a lot recently on posts in anticipation of that sweet new book that's coming out, We Can Be the New Wind. Great recommend. Totally worth a buck. Mm -hmm. All right, number two, Akimbo, Jersey Shores. Love that record. Yeah, I have the I have the record. Yeah, So good, man. I think it was in my top ten the year it came out, whenever that was. This one, Jersey Shores, it looks like it was re-released by Alternative Tentacles in 2010 it's a seattle hardcore noise band they've had over 10 guitarists in the band this is a noise record though noise rock record through and through they had a new guitarist on for this record aaron walters it's just awesome it's a concept album about a series of mysterious shark attacks which occurred in new jersey in 1916 this is a heavy record it's awesome I also picked up for a dollar a piece, Harshing Your Mellow, Forging Steel and Laying Stone, and Navigating the Bronze. But that's just number two of my last ten. Yeah, they're great. Jeez, I can't remember their names, but a couple of those guys, including the vocalist, are in a band called Sandwriter. Oh, I know. No, I they're know. really good. I know that now, for sure. Yeah. And that was just like, it's one of those things where it's like cheap discs, cheap records. I just looked up their description and I said, I'm going to give them a try. Knew nothing about them. And I got all four of those records. Love it. Um, number three, The Eat Brandt. Mm -hmm. The record is, it's not The Eat, it's The Humidity. This is the Miami, Florida punk band from the late 70s. Um, great pop punk that Jello collected and re-released on Alternative Tentacles. If you love the Buzzcocks, the Dickies, the Weirdos, the Boys, great riffs, great solos quirky melodic vocals kind of reminds me of some of the bands that came out on that canadian label other people's music that was releasing all that eastern canadian late 70s punk like the mods the demics the secrets check out the eat it's not the eat it's the humidity from florida right on all right number four the false prophets blind roaches yeah. and fat vultures Gotta love the False Prophets. This is 80s New York garage rock punk. This is a, a year 2000 comp of their uh, their records that Alternative Tentacles put out previously. Um, take some tracks from their records. Also, some demos and compilation tracks. Great if you love mid-80s trashy New York garage punk, and I know you do. Mm -hmm. uh, number five, Turn Me On, Dead Man. Yep. God bless the electric freak. This is they they have five records out. This is their second album from 2005. Pretty cool psychedelic glam rock from California. I knew nothing about them. Again, I just went like one dollar. I'll give it a try. Um, some trippy riffy stuff on there. Not surprised at all that Jello put this out. Yeah, no, they're cool. They put out a record a few years ago that was really good, and 
their the name of the band kind of ties in to our episode a little bit oh really yeah oh i can't wait for you to reveal that later i'm gonna i'll reveal it right now before i forget okay do it now do it now turn me on dead man is one of the backwards messages on a beatles track (laughs) you know (laughs) when people were winding it backwards and saying paul is dead and all that shit yeah turn me on dead man that's like one of the theories about the you know paul mccartney yeah paul is dead Oh, no way. I didn't know that. I know so little about the Beatles, but spoiler alert, side B is my favorite part of this release. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I say, though, hey? Like, if you got to choose between the Beatles and the Stones. The replacements? That's right. You listen to the replacements, (laughs) my friend. Number six, the dog-faced Hermans. Mm. This is is another recommend by you. Uh, Those Deep Buds, their 1994 record. This is their sixth album. This is that cool anarcho post-punk from Scotland. Noisy, funky, cool vocals and trumpet from lead singer Marion Coots. You recommended them to me, and I checked them out. And this is just a testament to how, you know, sometimes you really need to have the record and listen to the record. You can't just go and listen to 30 seconds on YouTube because um, I got the record and I've listened to it a number of times in a row and I just dig it and I got to get more dog-faced Hermans. Yeah, all their records are good. Yeah, can't wait. Number seven, this is not new to you. I got the self-titled Report Suspicious Activity record from 2005. Great post-hardcore from Vic Bondi of Articles of Faith and Jay Robbins on bass. Awesome. $1 CD. Couldn't pass it up. Yeah, all three, uh, three, I think, of their records. Maybe four. They're all really good, too. Yeah. All right, next, number eight, The Causey Way. Do you know The Causey Way, Brant? Yeah. Uh, I don't know them really well. I've heard the, them. This is the, the album Causey versus Everything. This is the quirky noisy synth post-punk band where they kind of they say they're a cult you know like they follow the causey way all of their material talks about how they live in a compound and the band isn't actually the causey way the band is actually ace oral communications and entertainment for the causey way but it's a great uh, punk new wave sounding synth band from gainesville florida both of their records are cool. Um, I didn't have this one, so it's worth a buck on CD. And then uh, the ninth record I got that I listened to is a band called Pilot Scott Tracy, which is essentially what some core members, including Scott Stanton from the Causeway, turned they turned into Pilot Scott Tracy. The record I got was We Cut Loose. This is their third album from 2006. I actually picked up two of their discs. This is probably a more dancey, dancey synth version of the Causeway, but it's cool. And then the last of my last 10, Brant, the band is called Comets on Fire. Oh, yeah. You know I like them. I have all their records. They're awesome. Yeah. Self-titled record from 2001, re-released on Alternative Tentacles from 2003. Great psych garage noise rock from santa cruz california influenced by the butthole surfers Hawkwind, and mc5 serious echoplex action going on here it's killer oh you want to see your cat go crazy like crank that record up (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I don't have cats. The this frequencies on those records, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Anyways, that's the last 10. Sorry. And look, I know it's kind of, I'm stealing a bit of our thunder from eight years from now when we do the alternative tentacles version, but look. Dude. Jello's going to put in another 200 records between now and then, so we, we've got time. I am so horny to do that alternative tentacles podcast. We might have to do it like concurrently with this one. Concurrent? Yeah, just to make sure we don't get scooped. <laughs> or like pause this one or something. Pause it and put put our our first alternative tentacles episode out there as a placeholder. Like our first 200. <laughs> Like, we got to strike where Iron's Hot Jello's been doing all these interviews. She doesn't normally do a ton of any. I heard him say on one of them that, you know, he's got nothing better to do because he's been locked down and stuff. So he's doing doing more interviews. He might do. He might start up a podcast about himself. He should. And Alternative Tentacles, well, he right? he has one. It's What Would Jello Do? Uh, well, that's, that's not really talking about the label and the releases on it, though. Well, there is one. There's the Batcast. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do they do more of that. You're shooting us in the foot, my friend. Yeah. Well they don't get they don't do the, the Mojack the deep, deep dive. dive. That's right. The Mojack deep dive. Yeah. Here's the thing though, just like this show, it don't matter. Cause we'll still do it. Okay. All right, Brent. It's time to get some Zoogs going on. Yeah. History lesson, part one. Now, this is his eighth album, depending on how you slice and dice it, when you look at the Zoogs catalog. We have been through seven before. Amputees in Limbo, Interim Resurgence, Island of Living Puke, Ipecac, Idiots on the Miniature Golf Course, Water and Water 2 at a Safe Distance. Looser Than Clams. Oh, yeah, right. Looser Than Clams. (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) Go listen to all of those again because they're all on side A of this tape. (laughs) Yeah, you actually don't need to listen to them. You can just listen to the side A of this and get like... Your total Zoogs fix. Yeah. This is a wild one. It, I don't even know where to begin. Okay, well, I do. Okay, lay it on me. Okay. So here's from a blog I've referenced before called Music for Maniacs. They've oh, got, I saw this too. Yeah, they've got a little thing about each Zoogs record. They say on there, like a cross between cartoon soundtracks and free jazz, side one of this 1987 cassette-only release is a sprawling smorgasbord of countless samples and snippets of prior Rift releases, mixed into a 44-minute sound collage. Casio's chipmunk voices, backwards voices, video game-like bloops and bleeps, some things resembling actual rock music and what sounds like five (laughs) records playing at the same time. Fun stuff. Side two is a found tape Zoog's claims was rescued from a garbage bin. It's a side of a polite, jazzy group apparently called the transients covering the Beatles and some fairly obscure solo Beatles songs. That story might be more believable if the voices weren't so obviously sped up. And then there's their cover of Revolution Number no. 9, which gives it all away. Still, judging by this set, Zoogs and company could have worked as a Holiday Inn lounge band. And who knows? Maybe they did. Maybe they did. Did you read what it said in Trouser Press for this release? Yes, I did, but hit me with it. Yeah, here's what it said. While preparing and releasing the Water Trilogy, Rift stuck together Son of Puke, a patience-defying cassette 
mixing samples from his collection of spoken word ephemera and instrumental bits. A few guitar chords here, some $40 Casio keyboard plinks there, all seemingly at random. It's occasionally fun, but not easy to endure for the full 45 minutes. If Rift's liner notes are to be believed, the cassette's flip side, a female vocal group carefully singing Beatles songs to the accompaniment of two jazzy electric guitarists, except for the full-scale sonic hell of Revolution Number no. 9, is by the unknown band The Transients and comes from a tape he discovered in a garbage bin. Hmm. Those are, that's like a suspicious hmm right there. Yeah. Suspicious hmm. Yeah, well, spoiler alert, it's it's not something he found in a, in a garbage bin. It's definitely Zoogs. Yeah. On the cassette it says... 45 minutes of insane tape manipulation that will drive you out of your skull. (laughs) (laughs) That's what side A of this tape is. Here's some stuff I got from Craig Uncrich, Mr. California. Oh, nice. Around 1987, Zoogs got a home recording unit. It was four tracks. He used it to create some of the music, which was later released as Son of Puke. He used an excess of snippets recorded at Mark Myler's originally for inclusion on Island of Living Puke. Outtakes and multiple takes. Lots of leftovers. He also used recordings of me playing the Ensonic Mirage sampling keyboard, uh, some samples of Zoogs on guitar recorded in my living room in Silmar. A sort of sample of the sampler, if you will. It's much harder to tell that this is going on with all the layers of tape manipulation. He also used Casio recordings from his releases, Smell My Genitals, which are woven into all of that other stuff. And then side B, uh, Craig says, is all covers of Beatles songs. He released these on cassette, which I, like he released a separate cassette of just this transient recordings. Okay. uh, Which I... Don't believe he ever tried to sell. He just gave them away. I think he held off on any personal sales as long as he had a good relationship with SST. He called it the transient's bootleg because it was not on SST, hence the bootleg. Ah, okay. Transients because it was the opposite of residence, which he thought the music sounded a bit like. Ah, it does. It does. And Craig also sent me a photo of his homemade transients tape that he got from Zoogs. Oh, and the cover the cover says, recorded in April of 87. No one knows who they are. No one cares who they are. <laughs> That's what it says on the, the liner notes for this one too, hey? Yeah. Our podcast pal John Butler Kerr, who collaborated with Zoogs on the Sanitized for Your Protection record, he posts some cool Zoogs stuff on his Instagram as McChalk Chalk, including some original <laughs> Zoogs art, by the way, that's really great, like some paintings. Like one, he's got one really wicked Zoogs painting on there. He sent me a few things, uh, and one of it's like a press release or something, and it's it's Zoogs is on there saying, "I've been experimenting with music and sounds since the late '60s, and I figured it was time to put out at least one release that represented that side of what I do," though admittedly. Most people who have heard this tape have pretty much hated it. Fuck them. Hmm. <laughs> Ryan, here's a little thing I did about the people that are listed on this tape. It just, there's an extensive list of names. Yeah, like 20. 
Yeah, so I had to remind myself of who some of these people are, so just bear with me here. Aaron T-Bar Rift, of course, is his son. John Truby, we interviewed on episode 123, Idiots on the Miniature Golf Course. Scott Colby, we interviewed on episode 151, Slide of Hand. Yes. Richie Haas, who went back with Zoogs all the way to the Zobus days back in New Jersey. Rest in peace. Craig, Mr. California Uncrich, is part of an elite group, our Two Timers Club. Yes. We we had him on for episode 77, Island of Living Puke, and 137, Water 2. Craig's a a Zoogs super fan, and he's been really invaluable on all of these Zoogs episodes. Totally. Wendy Singer, I don't recall who she is, but I do remember Craig talked about her on the Island of Living Puke episode. Matt Carlson from the cool band Earth Dies Burning. Uh, Our podcast pal David Martin hipped us to that record and actually sent us copies of it. Yeah. So check out the super cool Songs from the Valley of the Bored Teenager on Captured Tracks. Mark Myler, engineer at the legendary uh, Trigon Studios. We had him on 120 Ipecac and on 121 Interim Resurgence. Willie Lappin, we have not had on yet, I hope to, for one of these upcoming records. He's one of the longest-serving members of Zoogs' band. Yeah. He's a bassist. We'll be seeing him again. Mark Crawford, drummer and percussionist. We've seen him pop up all over the place, and we'll be seeing him soon on the Everett Shock LP. E. Bentley O'Brien, drummer. We had him on for episode 99, Water. And Ed also worked at SST. Jonathan Mako Sharkey, the coolest name in rock and roll. Passed away last year. Rest in peace, John Mako Sharkey. Tom Ferranti, drummer, Danny Buchanan, bassist. Jean Lind Huffman. She's on the uh, Island of Living Puke track Torture Sequence. I believe with Wendy Singer and for sure with Matt Carlson. Alan Carl Eugster. He's a violinist on the first SWA record. Also on a few Zoogs albums, and he's credited as being the person who introduced Chuck Dukowski to Zoogs Rift. Uh, the Transients, we'll get into that in a bit. Jim Simcoe, sax. Eric Williams, guitarist, dating back to the Micromastodons era. Mooch Urban, uh, as we've discussed previously, and you'll hear Laura mention in the interview, was in Zobus and was part of the that move to California. Mooch Urban is a pretty damn good name, too. Yep. Uh, Paul Canizo plays bass on one track on Looser Than Clams that dates back to 1977 that was previously unreleased, Eiffel Tower. So you know that song's in here somewhere. Tom Nagy was a drummer in Zobis. Ron Lorman, uh, he played drums on that Eiffel Tower track. Don't know who Jane Haven and Philip Johnston are. Maybe we uncovered it on a previous episode. Not sure. And then, of course, we've got Zoog's Riffs. And then, of course, we've got the liquid Moamo himself, Zoog's Rift on vocals, <laughs> guitars, ARP 2600 synthesizer, Casio VL1 keyboard, Mattel Synsonics drums, and tape manipulation done at home on a Tascam Porta 2 of selected pre-recorded performances, 1972 to 87. Wow. You have to marvel at it, even if it's hard to listen to sometimes. Yeah. You know what? It's funny, though. Like, side A, every once in a while, 
there's a moment where you can groove. Yeah. But then it's gone. <laughs> we should kick it over to Laura. Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Laura Rift. Laura, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so I'd like to go back to the start if I could. Now, are you from New Jersey? Yes, I am. Okay, and that's where you met Zoogs? Uh, yeah, um, we met in high school, actually, um, uh, Parsippany Hills High School in mm. New Jersey. Ah, you went to the same high school. Yes, we did. We probably went to, well, I didn't know him. My mother remarried and I moved to Parsippany when I was about nine. And uh, in fact, the first house that we lived in in Lake Parsippany was actually about three blocks from where he lived. But I didn't meet him until about six years after that. Hmm. So we our, our, our mothers probably were shopping in the same little grocery store, you know, but didn't know each other at that time. So. Right. So I probably ran into him as well. Right. Didn't know him. Okay. So how old would you have been when you met roughly? Uh, I was about 15. Mm, okay. And what was he like at that time? It's funny because, you know, when we were talking a little bit before, um, I met him because uh, he, we had, um, I don't want to say a mutual friend. It was kind of a friend of a friend in common. And that friend was teaching a what they what they called a mini course at our high school. Students could we were we were in a brand new high school, and students could take teach these mini courses during their break periods between like during study period or whatever. And one one of his friends was teaching a course on um, Eastern religious philosophy, so he took it and I took it, and that's where I met him. And that was I was uh, really impressed with him. He was. Uh, he seemed extremely creative, and again, his politics came came right to the fore because I was a, pretty much of a hippie type, very left wingy, you know, very liberal, and uh, you know, I think I got into it talking to him about business, and he said, "What's wrong with business? I don't have any problem with people making a profit." And I'm going, "Whoa, this guy is so weird. He's so different. He's like a hippie guy, but he doesn't do drugs, and he's not a socialist." And I thought that was super, super cool that he was bucking every trend almost um, in that was current at the time. So anti-alcohol, anti-drugs, anti-socialism. And I was really, really impressed with him. I thought he was a free thinker, an independent thinker. And uh, yeah, okay. he had a girlfriend at the time, but I was super impressed with him. <laughs> Was he into Dada yet? Yeah, yep, he was. <laughs> he was, you know, he liked surrealism. He liked uh, impressionism. He liked Dada. He he was sort of, um, you know, he was rebellious, but in a in a different way than most people, and um, that's what attracted me to him. That he was he was just very different. He had a whole collection of viewpoints that didn't really you couldn't pigeonhole him you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. he wasn't easy to put in a box and say oh well, this is this is i never knew what to what he was gonna say because again he couldn't be pigeonholed you know and that was basically true of his whole life he, he didn't fit into categories real easily right now was he playing music at this point yeah, a little bit, playing a little bit guitar. He was in, actually interested in acting. He was thinking about becoming an actor. 
um, despite his weight issues. He, he was taking classes and acting. He was also filming um, eight millimeter films. And he also had an interest in music. He got a guitar for his birthday when he was 12 or something. So he was just generally interested in the arts. And, and he was doing a lot of drawing as well. Watercolors too. So Right. Now, what about some of the other people that eventually would become the core of Zobus? Were they around, like Richie Haas, for example, did he go to high school with Zoogs? No, he no. grew up in uh, Plainfield. That's, uh, I don't know, 25 miles away, 20 miles away. He and Scott Colby came, came on the scene in 1973. So this was about a year and a half before Zooks and I. Zooks, when I met him in high school, we weren't dating. That came after he graduated from high school and, um, you know, in early 72. And then in 1973, he, he formed a band in late 72 with a core group of about four people. And then when things really took off is when Rich Haas and Scott Colby got involved. And that was maybe the spring of 1973, I'd say. How serious was he about Zobus? You, you know, you hear a lot about him really working hard on the band and like shopping the demos around and really getting frustrated that they couldn't gain any traction. Well, yeah, he was frustrated. Uh, he, uh, I mean, the band was everything to him. He had band rehearsals like three times a week. He was always uh, trying to rehearse, get the band better. Then he started trying to book shows in New, in northern New Jersey or anywhere, basically. Uh he played in various places. He played at something called the Transmedia Festival in the Trenton area in 1974. I got that, we call it a gig, but I got him uh, um, in touch with the person who was running it because I was going to school down in Trenton at the time and lived there. And that's where he met John Truby, who would be a big part of his uh, musical life. And uh, yeah, he was very serious about it. He had rehearsals in the basement of his mother's house all the time, driving her crazy. And um, yeah, he got very frustrated. And, and the reason he moved to L.A. was because things weren't happening. Uh, you know, he went off to all the all the major record companies in New York without success. He stayed at one of the band members' apartment in New York and then just did that. And, and that's when he decided, you know, enough is enough. And he decided to... Um, uh, move to Los Angeles. So when he moves out to LA, I believe you joined him roughly a year later after you, you, yeah, you a little college. after a year after I graduated college, I didn't want to, I had already transferred once I was going to part-time. And so I was, um, I was already late, you know, I wasn't graduating with most of the people that I went to high school with, you know, at the same year. And so I said, I cannot put this off any longer. I just got to finish. So I went out in, uh, yeah, about a year and a couple of months later. Okay. 78. So what kind of scene are you walking into? He's Does he have a, a band going again by this point? Yeah, he had, well, he, he went out with, uh, was he or Rich Hass, Scott Colby, and this guy, Bill Urban, we call them Mooch Urban. Right. The, the four of them went out. All kinds of problems occurred, you know, people not getting along, whatever. They rented an apartment together. And then Zoogs and Rich and Mooch rented a house. And at the time that I went out there, Mooch had already, he couldn't take it anymore. He, wanted, he missed his girlfriend. He moved back to New Jersey and we never heard from him again. But yeah, he was in the process of 
uh, forming a band. It was it was very difficult. He wasn't getting the, the right kind of people. And he was kind of on the outs with Scott for a while. And so Scott wasn't in the band. And so it was a kind of a little chaotic at the time that I came out. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked to a few of his former bandmates, and it seems like, you know, people coming in and out of the band was was fairly common. There was, it seemed like there was a lot of inner band tension that would explode, and then it would, you know, subside, and some people would come back into the band. What what was it about Zoogs's personality that was it just like his his vision that he was just so driven to you know to accomplish that kind of created that tension with other people? Do you think? Uh, I think that was part of it. Part of it that it is that he was very stubborn, very stubborn person, and part of it was um, you know he could he could get irritated with people, and I think sometimes he 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 was a little too judgmental. Um, that's how I feel when I look back at it. Uh, I've talked to some of the people that he's had falling outs with, and a lot of them have felt that, you know, they wished he had lived longer and they had made amends because Zoots did definitely mellow out some in his uh, last years of his life when I was taking care of him, he was living with me. Yeah, a lot of it is that people didn't meet his expectations, whether justly or unjustly, and then there was a falling out. And then sometimes people got back on his good side for a while. And then there was another falling out. And then there were people like Tom Brown that he never had any issues with ever. Mm. You know. Do you think like he had a hard time putting what he heard in his head down on a record? Is that something he complained about? Or was he generally satisfied with, with his recordings? I think sometimes he was and sometimes he wasn't. Sometimes he wasn't satisfied with the musicianship. And sometimes it was just the lack of money and the fact that he didn't really have enough money to screw around with it and to keep trying and to try different things. At some point, he just had to say, okay, this is, this is the money I have. This is the time I have. And, and uh, you know, I have to be satisfied with it. And uh, these are the people that I'm working with and this is the best it's gonna be. And at some point, you know, you have to let go. And uh, especially when you have limited funds so yeah i think i think mixed you know um oh by the way you can see a couple of his paintings this is zatuichi the japanese blind japanese swordsman this was a huge painting that was probably about i'm i'm guessing now six times the size and when he was painting it he got frustrated with it and um started to destroy it and then regretted it and so he salvaged this part of it so that's all that there's left he really regretted it It was a great painting i have a picture of it and it was just one of those things where he was dissatisfied and then he realized what did i do the painting was really good and i've i've destroyed it so it is what it is and that's another one up there more impressionistic I don't know what if you can see much of that, but uh, uh, on the subject of his like his visual art, t- talk to me about that. Is that something he did his whole life painting? Here's what what the story with that is. He when he was a kid, he did a lot of drawings and watercolors, and then as a teenager, he started going more towards film and music, and so he stopped doing the painting and uh, the watercolors and the drawings. And then what happened was later on, 
much later on when he got became diabetic and had to give himself the insulin, check his blood sugar in his fingers and give himself insulin shots. And I gave him shots later uh, after that. But uh, this would be around 2002 through 2004, he started doing oil paintings because he just couldn't do music anymore. He couldn't get out to rehearsals. He couldn't get out to studios. His fingers, the tips of his fingers made, were hurt and made it hard for him to play guitar. So he got back into the painting. I, I just, you know, I wish he had done that earlier and taken better care of his health. Mm -hmm. In other words, he, there are a lot of reasons he didn't take proper care of his health. He should have been on insulin for years earlier. Part of it was because he didn't want to give up playing guitar. And I wish he had given up the guitar like six, seven, eight years earlier and just done other things and gotten on insulin. If he had, he might be here now. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It seems like, you know, a defining, his, his weight was really something that he struggled with his whole life, both physically and mentally. Do you think, you know, that was a big part of shaping his personality? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say it was. It was it was a real battle. He got picked on some at school. Um, and as he said, he wasn't really fat then. He got really fat later on. But you know and how it is when you're kids. You know, anything where you deviate from the norm mm -hmm. is going to be something that you'll be picked on for. And so, yeah, that being bullied definitely affected him for sure. Um, he did go through periods where he got his weight down. When we first started dating, he wasn't really even that heavy, but he was heavy by the standards of the time, you know. You know, like I say, there's there's a whole way of evaluating teenagers and young adults that, you know, is it's very harsh. Children can be very, very harsh. So yeah, he, he was... Um, you know, it was a problem. And then later on, it became a health problem, a bigger problem. And, you know, he lost the weight, but he always went on these extreme diets, lost a ton of weight, and then would gain it back. I mean, most people do gain it back. The problem with him is he gained it back pretty rapidly. So he didn't even really get the benefits from having lost all that weight because he didn't keep it off long enough. Right. What about... <laughs> I feel like he had a really, he was really unwilling or did not want to ever work a straight job. It seems like there was a lot of desire on his part to really just focus full time on music. And, and that was a real struggle for him wanting to do that, but not being able to financially sustain himself. Yeah, that was, that was like one of the biggest themes of his life. When we first went out, he worked, of course, he worked for regular jobs for probably the better part of a, you know, about a decade, uh, maybe a little bit less, better part of nine years or so from the time he graduated high school till about 1980-ish. Yeah, it was, it was a huge problem because basically, you know, he needed to marry somebody wealthy and he didn't. Uh, I worked, I made a relatively decent income. I, a lot of times I had worked overtime or I worked two jobs and I just got fed up. I got fed up be, everything being put on me, especially once we had a son, you know, um, as I've told people, it would have been different if I loved my job and I didn't have to work so many hours, 
but that wasn't the case. So yeah, it was a real problem. And I think down deep, Azugs knew that he really couldn't morally justify it. You know, he the, the whole starving artist uh, justification really doesn't work. For me, it doesn't. It's an elitist sort of a thing. And I think he knew ultimately that it was a problem, but he just was so committed to getting the music out. He had convinced himself he was going to die young, relatively young, which became a self-fulfilling prophecy in, a, in effect because his, his dad died at about 55. And, you know, it became just this, just he felt like I have to, absolutely have to get this stuff done instead of thinking, well, maybe if I take better care of my health and do more to appease Laura, <laughs> that I will have a longer life. I'll keep my marriage intact and things will be better, you know, 15, 20, 25 years down the line if I make a few sacrifices now. I wish that that had been his thinking but it was not. So what happened, happened. What about like, I'm imagining conflict with employers? No, he just, he would, uh, well, yeah, he did. Back in New Jersey, he had worked at this place called Atlas Sound and he had huge issues with Atlas Sound. Um, Zooks didn't really stay around long enough at any given job to really you know, have the, that many issues. I mean, Atlas Sound, I think, ended up laying him off, which was great. He could collect, he collected unemployment for like a year because at that time in New Jersey, this was like 76 or something, there was a high rate of unemployment, the Jimmy Carter years, you know, and he had, uh, they extended the unemployment. So he, uh, Rich rented a room from his mom and that was a really great year for him. Both of them were unemployed and they just do whatever they wanted during the day, practice their instruments or go places. And then at night they'd have band rehearsals and that was their life. So he did work. Life for <laughs> he did work as a typesetter, I believe. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He worked with me for a while. I was proofreading. He was typesetting. We also had a typesetting business for a uh, a short period of time up in Oregon and then back down here in LA that didn't work out because uh, you know there wasn't enough work and he didn't want to do it and I didn't want to do it so mm -hmm. obviously it, it wouldn't work out what can you tell me about the shitheads across America tour well that was kind of a that was pretty much of a disaster <laughs> we lost our car the car kept we took the car to a mechanic and 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 had work done we had a lot of work done I don't know what happened, but we had one one problem after another. And so the car broke down and it finally broke down for good. I mean, the radiator kept overheating the whole like trip, you know, it was ridiculous. So that was the problem. Another problem was that uh, um, a lot of the shows got canceled. Uh, sometimes people didn't show up. Uh, Zoots got lost in Pittsburgh. I remember that. I was in the hotel room and he said, it's crazy. It's all these one-way one -way streets. So yeah, it was it was a kind of a disaster. Oh, Rich Hass got sick on the way out. And then um, our son got sick on the way back when we were taking a bus from El Paso to Los Angeles. He, he developed a high fever while we were on the bus so yeah it was really kind of a disaster i mean it's funny looking back at it but believe me it was not funny at the time mm -hmm. he did 
tour later into the early 90s and stuff like overseas and stuff did he like yeah the, yes he, he the europe the europe um tours went much 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 better he was he was very happy for the most part with with that but of course so that was booked professionally not by him well so supposedly so was the um the 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 eighty six thing, right. uh, but it, it it was it worked out better. I think he had more of a following in Europe, and um, yeah, there it was it was generally it was financed by the agency, so it wasn't costly uh, for us like the the eighty six tour. So yeah, he was very pleased with it, and he really enjoyed doing that. Yeah, he, I think he wished there had been more of that. You know, things had gone better. Yeah. Tell me about the time you talked to Captain Beefheart about Zoogs. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't remember too much. This was back in 19, oh, God, late 79 or early 1980. And uh, turns out he's a big baseball fan. So I ended up talking about baseball with him. And uh, yeah, so that was that was kind of interesting. I'm trying to remember exactly how that went down. I think Zoogs talked to him a couple of times. I'm, I'm actually not too sure because it's very vague in my mind, but I do remember um, getting his number and, and calling him. And uh, that's about all I remember, mm-hmm. truthfully. He was definitely aware of Zoogs, though. Yeah, yeah. And like I say, the baseball thing was a, was a good uh, kind of in, mm-hmm. you know. Tell me about... Zoogs's kind of obsession with wrestling was that a lifelong thing yes uh when i met him he was talking about professional wrestling okay my son does that for a living you know he has his own website and was i'm telling you i could never get into that never (laughs) never never he dragged me to wrestling shows at madison square garden we went to the olympic stadium here in la i mean i i was i played along with it. i was a trooper but you know I still don't understand the appeal. My son loves it. I mean, Aaron just took to that. So, I mean, they used to do their little wrestling shows in the bedroom. One time Zoogs almost fell out the window. That really, I mean, it's funny, but it wouldn't have been funny if he crashed down and fell on his back on the pat on the cement of the patio and probably would have broke his neck. But um, he did all kinds of things, he and Aaron, and they went to all kinds of shows and he, he, he was involved with this guy, Herb Abrams, uh, doing his wrestling thing, this, you know, Universal Wrestling Federation, whatever it was. And then he got involved in independent wrestling federations. And, you know, like I say, I went to some of them to, you know, basically to, for his sake, you know, I, to me, most of it was just boring. Right. I never really understood the appeal. Like very few women like wrestling i mean very fair few my son is engaged to a woman that actually does like professional wrestling but i'm guessing 99 percent of the fans are men and uh you know it's something about the uh, male mind i don't quite get it i don't how about you do you like wrestling uh i did when i was younger but i kind of Sorry if I stepped on a couple of toes there, but I mean, it's a known fact that most women just are rolling their eyes. Mm-hmm. They, they are clueless. Yeah. You know, it's like, what's the appeal of this? I don't know. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But he did eventually try and get into the business himself, I believe, as, as a performer and, and as well as a, a writer. Um, well, he was a manager with Herb. 
And he also was a manager with these couple of independent wrestling federations that I can't even think of. Aaron would know more, way more about that. But I don't think as a performer, because Zeus wasn't in good enough physical shape to do anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he could manage it and he could do, you know, do, do that kind of his, his shtick as a manager. So that's what he was doing. Now, you just reissued Die You Cretinous Bastards. What's next? What are you going to work on well, next? Well, uh, Music Sucks, which is um, basically a, you know, just just odd versions, various versions. It's kind of like a, a mashup of things from various uh, other albums and outtakes or what Zoo's called rarities. Um, just different versions of songs. And there'll be a couple of other uh, songs that aren't on the um, aren't on the other um, albums that have been, you know, digitally released. So I'm working, I'm in the process of working on that now. And that'll probably be released maybe the end of May, something somewhere around there. Okay. And after that, I don't know, there's not that much left that I want to do, but I might come up with one or two more things. Are there a lot of unreleased recordings? Well, they were thing. Yeah. Things that were released by Zoogs. Yes. But again, most of them are, you know, greatest hits, cover things which have copyright issues, right. or Zook's doing a, like a lot of electronic stuff, a lot of very self-indulgent, I'm saying self-indulgent stuff. Just a hodgepodge of different things, live recordings. He even has one, I'm not sure which one it is, but one of it even has uh, radio commercials for wrestling. I mean, that's copyright thing. I can't mess with that. I mean, I'm putting my name on these things, you know. Right. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that's just not going to be re-released. Uh, there, there are tracks that I've deliberately left off because of copyright issues. When I started doing this, I kind of, I was winging it. I'm still winging it in far, as far as like legalities, but I'm trying to do I'm trying to do it a right the right way without getting crazy about it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you know if Zoogs had a, a favorite album of his? Uh, yeah, his favorite album was uh, Murdering Hell's Happy Cretans. Hmm. It is not the... <laughs> I, should, I don't know if I should say this, but what the hell? Um, in terms of uh, the digital sales, which are, you know, all very low because Zoogs didn't, you know, wasn't too popular when he was alive doing things. But um, the things that have done the best have been um, Idiots on the Miniature Golf Course and The Villagers, or Villagers, and not Murdering Hell's Happy Cretans. Mm. So I, I don't know if he, he probably wouldn't be very happy about that, but it, it is what it is, you know. But yeah, I mean, that's what he, he considered his best album. What about you? I don't know. I would have to say uh, probably villagers and idiots on uh, probably the ones that are selling the most. I tend to like things that are a little bit more mainstream. I mean, I like murdering hell's happy cretins. The, the, the stuff that uh, is more dissonant is the stuff that I like the least. So that's the way it is for me. I mean, I like about one third of his music, about one third of his music. I'm indifferent and about one third of it. I don't like at all. Yeah. So, um, but that's, you know, somebody like Craig is much more of a hardcore fan. I'm not because, again, my tastes tend to be more mainstream. You recently uh, had a post about Zoogs's, you know, passing 10 years ago already. What do you think Zoogs would make of 
all of this <laughs> the politics in the u.s and you know, covid uh, and... i i have abs- i i am very certain that he would feel very similar to me um through all our difficulties and we had a lot we, our our political and philosophical views lined up almost a hundred percent all the time even as we evolved and ch- changed our views we evolved and changed in the same way which is pretty weird it just worked out that way. We've always thought just very similar on a lot of things. Uh, we probably differed more in cultural things, you know, like music and the, the wrestling and all that. But yeah, he would uh, he would be uh, very, very upset. And I'm sure he would feel like me that he's outlived his time. Um, I, I think he would hate, I think he would love social media in some respects. He'd like to do things on YouTube and do creative things on YouTube and, but the, the whole, you know, kind of middle school feeling of Facebook. I've never been on Twitter, but I'm sure it's the same thing. People insulting each other. And I mean, Zoogs did that too, but it was part of his shtick. It wasn't, I don't think he would want to get into these, uh, you know, childish personal things back and forth. Um, not at this stage of his life, maybe when he was in his 20s or 30s, he would have done that. Um, I think he would have uh, found it very distressing. And the whole uh, the whole cancel culture thing, I think he would have been really found repellent. And um, as I do, you know, uh, people people silenced because they they have a differing point of view. Um, he very strongly believed in free speech and free speech means that people you vehemently disagree with have a right to their opinions. So he definitely if he, you know, would have kept his health intact, he, he would have still been making music. I think so. Yeah. But I, I don't know. He might have he might have done just going the way of Captain Beefheart regardless you know Beefheart went from music to painting and um the the nice thing about painting it, like writing is that you it's solitary you know you can do I mean you can do music solitary also obviously but I mean if you if you have performances if you compose something that you need a whole band then you need the cooperation of other people um with painting you don't with writing you don't so he may have he may have just continued with the painting no matter what and given music up. I don't know that he would have done that, but I could see him having gone in that direction regardless of his health. Also, you know, just getting older changes you. It makes you, uh, I don't know, it just changes you. You have a different view of life than you did when you were young. You know, I think a lot of people do. I know I do. And I think had Zoots lived, he would have continued in the direction of being maybe, you know, a little bit more mellow. Um, at least I hope that was the direction that he was going in that I could see. Yeah. yeah. Laura, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Well, thank you. You didn't ask me anything too, uh, <laughs> too controversial there. So I hope I, I hope I did a good job. Yeah, you did. All right. Like I said, so lucky to have Laura on. She really can give us some amazing insight into the man himself. And it's clear, like I said at the outset, like total soulmates, right? Yeah. Oh, man. Like, if I could have, I would rather have Zoog's Rift on this show than Greg Ginn. Oh, really? Like, as a guest. That's how bad I wish we could have had Zoog's on, you know? 
Like, can just imagine. He could fill many episodes, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, just yeah. all of them. All yeah. of them. There's so much, so much to talk about. Um, yeah. And as we've mentioned before, one of the main things that we can relate to is just his frustration and anger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like when she says, you know, when she first met him, she could tell he was just like a free thinker that was bucking every trend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the paintings that she mentions that I could see behind her on the, you know, we're talking virtually. Uh, she sent me pictures of those, so we'll be posting those. Oh. They're really cool. He was a great visual artist, man. Yeah. I'm not surprised there. The guy was just endless creativity and he had such weird outlets. Yeah. One thing I'll just hip everybody to is uh, she mentions Music Sucks is going to be her next release. It's actually out. She It's come out in, just in this past week. It's really good. It's up on Amazon, Apple, Spotify. Nice. Uh, it was originally released by Snout Records on cassette only in September of 84. It's an anthology of Zoog's Rift rarities and outtakes, circa 73 to 84. Laura says... It has one of my favorite Zoog's Riff songs of all time on it called Ed McMahon. It's appearing for the first time on a digital release. The music was composed by longtime Zobus member Scott Colby, and he just does a ripping solo on it. Slide, I hope. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. Slide. All right. Yeah. Nice. That music sucks is really good, though, man. There's some good stuff on there. Some of it we've heard before. Some of it. It's got alternate versions of some songs. It's really good. Uh, John Butler Kerr sent me a few um, reviews of this record. Yeah, I saw uh, several reviews online. It actually got some pretty good reviews. Yeah. I, I said record. It's actually, just to be clear, this only came out on cassette. It says so on the cassette. It says, yeah. a cassette-only release, not available on vinyl, exclamation point. <laughs> I wonder how many they put out, like how many tapes of this they made. Less than a thousand? Yeah. Right? Okay, here's one review, and I don't know who wrote this or where it's from, because it doesn't say. Whether this cassette-only collection is aimed at Walkman-bearing joggers or grooving <laughs> boombox owners, it will serve as a fitting introduction to Zoog's Rift, as Zappa-esque a musician as walks the face of the earth. Zoog's is a rather odd-looking person, full beard, shaven head, body like a pro wrestler gone to pot, and it shows in his music. His style is eclectic and rambling, prone to fast switches from guitar to tape loop to strange spoken diatribes. Son of Puke, subtitled If We Meet You, We Will Eat You, is a sequel of sorts to Zoogs's Island of Living Puke album. No vomit fixation for this guy, is there? In fact, the cover insert is pungently impregnated with the yuck of the title, about as totally revolting an idea as the Boomtown Rats' original promo. Shipping critics across the country dead rats in plastic bags. <laughs> and you thought record reviewing was a glamorous business. Side one is a mix of fresh and tape-looped zoogs along with a lot of noodling. Side two of Son of Puke is called The Transients Bootleg and subtitled No One Knows Who They Are, No One Cares Who They Are, whatever that means. This track is a collection of falsetto, voice and solo guitar covers of songs such as Ringo's It Don't Come Easy, The Fab Four's If I Fell, and P.S. I Love You. These cuts are far more riveting than those on side one, if only out of perverse curiosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. You know how this was only released on cassette, hey? It actually says in the liner notes, this is, this is what it says here. It says, 
do not make copies of this cassette. Force your friends to buy it. Zoogs deserves the money. You don't like to work for free. Neither does he. <laughs> and then it also lists a number of the albums, right, that we talked about. And it, it mentions all the ones. Um, but then it says at the bottom of the list, the non-entity is slated for a, uh, a 688 release. But then it says albums available by Zoog's Rift that you should go out and purchase immediately. Yes. <laughs> History lesson, part two. All right, so track one, I guess, side one of this tape is The Son of Puke. Uh, it starts out with Matt Carlson. I'm assuming leftovers from the nightclub sequence. The winner is Zoog's Rift, and then all that stuff that we've heard before of, you know, people taunting Zoogs. Get in fucking shape. Why do you always have to be so negative? Yeah. What's a young man like you have to be so nervous about? And it just goes on from there. Lots of shitty Casio sounds. Like, almost sounds like a Nintendo or something. Or a, you know, an early 8-bit yeah. video game console. Like cheap uh, Nintendo. Yeah. Uh, Richie on vibes. You can hear all over the place. Lots of backwards Zoog's rants. Yeah. Uh, you can hear a lot of familiar snippets of Zoog's riff songs throughout the whole thing. And it's just... It basically does that for 44 minutes. Yeah. It's an interesting listen to try and pick stuff out. Yeah. But not something you want to listen to while jogging with your Walkman on. <laughs> Side two of this record, though. Uh, and it, it was interesting. I did a lot of four-track recording. And this is a technique that I did a lot. And then I remember hearing uh, Ween way later oh speeding up the tape yeah for sure and, be, for and sure. being all like oh cool this ween group does the same thing that i did and probably Million. thousands of other people Millions. did you know yeah. with a four track uh, i did it a lot so it, the four track i had just had a dial on it where you just it actually sped up this the speed the that the tape moved yeah i wasn't kidding though like this is i don't know any of these songs i I do not listen to the Beatles, you know, like I, what I know of the Beatles, I, you know, just like on TV and the radio. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you about all these songs, Ryan. You're going to tell thought, me about yeah, all of them. I thought it'd be fun to dig up a little info on all of because these. Like I just, I just was interested and in enjoying the listen, uh, the sped up jazz guitar versions of these songs. I like better than any Beatles songs. Yeah, well, check this out, Ryan. What I did is I actually have an MP3 of side two of this, which you can find if you do a little digging online. I put it into the editing software that we use, and then I slowed it down. <laughs> it, it was really fun to listen to, man. Yeah. Like, I listened to it at the, the prep, proper speed as it was released. Too. I just, just listened to it on my tape deck. Yeah. It's cool, man. Listen, here's the thing about Zoog's Rift. He gets... I think unfairly criticized. No credit for nothing. Within the SST community. Uh, I mean, music aside, take your musical taste out of it. He could sing really well and shred. I think in this era, we're just getting into the era where Zoogs was coming into his own as a guitar player. Mm -hmm. a, a few weeks ago, I talked about that Brain Cookies oh, yeah, recording. Right. 
a KXLU recording. I wish Laura could put that out. Like his guitar playing and singing on that and the whole band's performance. Like I can't wait to get into these next three records because it's from that era. And like it, it it's phenomenal. Like yeah. he was he was really gifted, man. His later era stuff is what is that was my entry point. And yeah. he actually like the post SST releases. That was my entry point. So I hear you. Yeah, I'd love to hear you know just the straight recordings of these songs uh, you know as laura says in the interview you know there's copyright issues especially with a band as high profile as the beatles but I, if they exist i would love to just hear the straight straight versions of these songs and here's something else uh mark myler had referred to zoog's rift as a closet beatles fan to me so i asked laura about it i should have asked her in the interview but i didn't here's what she said though Zoogs was a big Beatles fan. He wasn't a closet fan. He was open about it. Aaron is a huge fan as well, as am I. We listened to a lot of Beatles in the 60s and 70s. Also, when the Fab Four went off to their solo careers, Zoogs followed them closely, especially George Harrison and Paul McCartney. Yeah. His favorite albums, I'm guessing, were Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and the White Album, but he liked them all. He also loved George Harrison's All Things Much Pass, and Paul McCartney's band on the run. Oh, the Wings so here, record. Yeah. Yeah, that's got yeah. some okay songs on it. Yep. Hey, and you know what? I I will admit to uh loving the two Traveling Wilburys records. Yeah, oh, I love I love the first one for sure. I I have all the Beatles records. I wouldn't say I'm a fanatic or anything, but I like them. I've got some Wings, I've got some of John Lennon stuff. I've got oh. the I've got the John and Yoko in New York, but only because Zappa's on it. Ah. Okay, here's the songs that he does on side on side two of this tape. Here, there, and everywhere. Uh, 1966 Beatles song came out on Revolver. Uh, credited as they all were uh, to Lennon McCartney. Uh, actually written by Paul though. Uh, he said it's one of his personal favorites he's ever written. He began writing it at John Lennon's house out by the pool on guitar while waiting for John to wake up. Uh, he was, and you can, when you listen to the original version of this, you can totally hear it. Uh, he said it was really inspired by the Beach Boys track "Only God Knows," which had just come out. Like he just heard it, like the oh, day before. Oh yeah, this. okay. Yeah. Or sorry, God only knows. God only knows. Off yeah. that sounds. Track two, One More Kiss, Paul and Linda McCartney, uh, from Paul McCartney and Wings, 1973 album, Red Rose Speedway. Uh, Paul was chasing his four-year-old daughter Mary around and saying, give me a kiss, like kind of teasing her. And she said, Dad, all right, but only one more kiss. And he said, so I got one more kiss and a song. Hmm. Uh, one of my favorites that Zoogs does, like I really like his version of this, is Long, 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 1968, The White Album, written by George Harrison while they were all in India at uh, the Maharishi Yogi's uh, Transcendental Meditation Retreat. He'd been almost exclusively playing sitar for the previous two two years, but had begun playing guitar again and kind of sparked a writing spree, and this is one of the songs that came out of that. Track four, P.S. I Love You, uh, Lennon-McCartney, but primarily uh, 
Paul McCartney song. It's the B-side of the Love Me Do single, but uh, was then included on their debut album in 1963, Please Please Me. It was recorded right after they replaced Pete Best with Ringo Starr, possibly the first track he played on in the studio. Hmm. Track five, Run of the Mill, a George Harrison song from the 1970 triple album All Things Must Pass. Written during the Let It Be sessions, uh, the lyrics reflect the toll that running the Apple Corporation company had on the relationships within the Beatles. Track six, Little Lamb Dragonfly, another Wings track, again from the Red Rose Speedway album, clearly a fave of Zoog's. Uh, originally recorded during the Ram Sessions in 1971, he in- originally intended the song to be a part of his Rupert and the Frog song animated film project. Track seven, Deep Blue, another George Harrison song, uh, He wrote it during the sessions for All Things Must Pass, but released it as the B-side for his Bangladesh charity single, uh, recorded while he was in L.A. organizing the concert for Bangladesh. Track 8, another one of my faves, uh, Zeus's version, I mean. It Don't Come Easy, credited solely to Ringo Starr, but George helped them write it. Uh, They performed it together at the concert for Bangladesh, and the record... Recording went to number one in Canada and number four in the U.S. and U.K. Mamonia, Paul and Linda, a wing song from Band on the Run, 1973. Mamonia was the name of the hotel they were staying at in Marrakesh, and it means safe haven in Arabic. Pretty cool song, actually. It's got a real world music vibe, the original. Track 10, If I Fell, is a Beatles song. Uh, Lennon McCartney, but primarily John, 1964, A Hard Day's Night. Uh, When they recorded it, John and Paul shared the same mic, like Everly Brothers style, Ah. for the the harmonies. Track 11, If I Needed Someone, uh, from the Beatles' Rubber Soul, 1965. George wrote this for Patty Boyd, uh, inspired by the birds, and you can hear it. There's the three-part harmonies. There's definitely a 12-string Rickenbacker being played on here. Track 12, Yes It Is, uh, The Beatles, Lennon McCartney, written by John. It's the B-side of the Ticket to Ride single from 1965. Track 13, Awaiting on You All, another of George's from All Things Must Pass. Recorded in London with Clapton, Bobby Whitlock, Jim Gordon, Jim Price, a bunch of people he, he had toured with as uh, Delaney and Bonnie and friends. Track 14, can You Take Me Back from the White Album? Actually, a coda to the song Cry Baby Cry. It's not listed on the jacket, uh, so it has no official name. It's just become known as Can You Take Me Back. And then we have Revolution 9. It's a sound collage on the White Album, created primarily by John with help from George and Yoko. This is a perfect song for Zooks to cover. Yeah. And track 16, Good Night from the White Album, written by John for his then five-year-old son, Julian, sung by Ringo, who's the only actual Beatle on the recording. The rest is just all orchestrated. Uh, It's the final song on the White Album and the final one on this tape. I still would rather listen to Side B of Son of Puke. Than the Beatles? I think so. I thought Mm. this was cool. It reminded me of a ton of sped-up four-track recordings that I've listened to, and... It, uh, it it just 
reminded me of like you know how you'd listen to a record and then all of a sudden there'd be that weird track this is like a whole side of that weird stuff and for some reason i was into it yeah i liked it the artwork is great it's got a i don't know this is like a the cover reminds me of something zappa would do hey just the like the font or whatever son of puke well even the name son of puke yeah 60s zappa for sure have we read what's on the cover yet i don't think so uh not the front do you want me to read that yeah hit me with it okay here we go just when you thought it was safe to go back into the neighborhood just when it appeared that god the lobster had liberated you from the evil of those disgusting and nauseating human slime called the citizens aka the mofos just when you were getting comfortable with the idea of the dismal stormy rain washing away the rays of urine from the sun somebody turn off the goddamn tap the motherfuckers are everywhere thalidomide productions presents son of puke if we meet you we will eat you yeah here's what the spaceman said about this record too Michael Whitaker, the son of puke lives, breathes, and stalks his island. He spouts his legacy in a fantastic twisted collage, then kicks back with the Beatles. Zoogs, the original liquid Moamo, has documented the son's wild call in this stunning cassette-only release. SST-174, $7.50. (laughs) <laughs> here's who, what it says who would have inside. ordered this one I wonder <laughs> here's what it says inside the tape about the transients note side B of this cassette tape contains recordings that have nothing to do with Zoog's Rift he found them one night while rummaging through the garbage bins out back behind Denny's on Sunset by the freeway and decided that this band apparently known as the transients was going to be the next big thing so we figured, what the fuck? We had space to fill up anyway, so why not put this shit on there? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the the transients slogan should be our slogan for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, no I one knows wish, who they are. No one cares who they are. I kind of wish that someone who's hip would have like caught on to side B on this tape and started a real band, the transients. Like, you know, and and put out records kind of like the Shags or something. Yeah. And I feel like they unfortunately would probably get more popular, though, than Zoog's Rift ever was. Yeah. But it it should still be done. And by the way, this is copyright Miss Anne Throp Music, 1987. Yeah, Yeah, a lot of his stuff is... That that's Zoogs, obviously, as is Thalidomide Productions. Right. Yep. Canoga Park. Ballot result? We have to do it. Ballot result. So I'm just going to jump in right now and say I don't think it's Side A. No, no. It's got to be one of the tracks from Side B. It's a sped up Beatles song because it's cool. Yeah. Uh, my favorites were Long, 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 and It Don't Come Easy. It Don't Come Easy for me. Nice. Yeah, let's do that. 
hey, Laura, thanks for being on. Yeah, no doubt. Three more to go, Ryan. I can't wait. Of Zoogs? Yeah. Oh, my friend. We've just begun. Yeah. We've just begun the Zoogs because there's Zoogs after SST, and you got to check that out too. But you're right. Yeah. Three more on the show. Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, it's SST 175, the Black Flag single, Louie Louie. And we've got a special guest. Yeah, Ed Culver's on the show. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.